2: The Telegraph. the Telegraph. Podcasts.
0: The story isn't over. There are yet more names being added to the list of survivors of infected blood, as often as every other week. Well, even now, now I can look back on it. It's kind of bizarre. I'm speaking well, to Stephen. He's in his late 50s and he loves cycling. He's telling me a story that's fresh. It only happened a few weeks before we talk. It's a phone
3: call. And it, was, it was out of the blue, to be honest. Um, it was me, my new doctor, Dr Croker, and he's phoned me up and he's just said, um, Hi, Mr Smith, um, you've got a moment? Yeah, got some bad news.
0: This is Bed of Lies, Episode 6, Retribution, Part 2. Stephen moved to Cornwall with his wife last year. They're from Essex. He'd registered with his new doctor and been for a health checkup. Do, he just
3: asked the, the, the usual questions: How's your health? How you been feeling? Um, I just said that the stomach pains, back pains, and he went, "Oh, you know, you sort of raised an eyebrow. What's that all about?" I said, "Oh, I've had, I've had this now for six years. I had it bad for six years.
0: The pain's been crippling.
3: It's horrible. <laughs> it really hurts. It is." It's like a cramp, but 10 times worse. And you take painkillers and it doesn't touch the sides. It does nothing. You put water bottles on it. You go in baths. You try You try. I lay on the floor.
0: But I can <laughs> see in your face when you're describing that pain, you sort of like, your face scrunches I up wince. in a way yeah. that kind of, I can feel it almost just by seeing that in your horrible, face.
3: It's horrible, horrible.
0: Over the years, he's visited top London consultants and done test after test.
3: I have lost count of the cameras that have gone down my throat, the cameras that have gone up my back passage. MRI, yeah, you know, I've had it. I've had MRI scans, I've had CAT scans.
0: One doctor thought he could have pancreatic cancer, but he was in the clear. They removed his gallbladder, but the pain continued. Stephen quit his job on the London Underground. He became depressed and angry. Then finally, after seven years, this small-town GP in Cornwall had a diagnosis.
3: And lo and behold, doctors turned around and said, you've got hepatitis C.
0: Hepatitis C. That's what's been causing all the problems over the years.
3: I was in shock, and that's the truth of it. I was like, wow, what's that? So I've gone straight into Google. And it terrified me. It terrified me. I broke down and started crying. That's the truth of it.
0: He discovered how most people catch the virus.
3: The first thing that I've seen is... um, from sharing drugs, drug use, and that certainly isn't me. I've, I've never touched drugs in my life, let alone shared needles.
0: You can also catch it from tattoo parlours. But that wasn't him either. Then he spotted another way.
3: Or by blood transfusions.
0: And Stephen did have one of those.
4: It
3: was back in 1985 when I severed my artery, when I... Um, had a row with a glass door. I kicked the door and my me, me leg went straight through it. It was like a guillotine. Um, the neighbour come in, he's called an ambulance. Everyone was screaming. I mean, I was passing out. I, I was. I would just have my hands around my ankle trying to stop the blood. I severed uh, everything down there. I severed an artery, the nerves, the tendons, and nearly died. There was so much blood.
0: The next thing he remembers is waking up in hospital.
3: And I'm laying on my back and I'm looking up. And I couldn't see anybody, I couldn't hear anybody because it was now probably 2, 3 o'clock in the morning. And then I've looked along the bed, but I've got all the curtains around me. And I could see a metal pole and it had a bag on it.
0: Blood was flowing from that bag into his arm, replenishing him after the accident.
3: They were constantly changing them bags.
0: He needed four pints in total.
3: If I didn't have it, I would have died. So, you know, what do you do?
0: With that memory, Stephen became the latest victim of the biggest medical disaster in NHS history.
3: I knew nothing about this, this blood inquiry.
0: He doesn't have haemophilia and he's never been given factor eight. He got hepatitis C from a blood transfusion. This is a different part of the story but one the infected blood inquiry is also looking into. Britain was self-sufficient in blood, unlike plasma, so infections like Stevens came from British people who volunteered to donate. A test for hepatitis C only became available in 1991, so the blood couldn't be screened. But there were still avoidable mistakes that the inquiry's looking into. As for now, Experts say anyone who had a blood transfusion before 1991 should get a hepatitis C test. It can take years for symptoms to appear, sometimes as long as 20 or 30. So there are many more people out there like Stephen who could have the virus and not know. If he had been diagnosed years ago, the hepatitis might not have done so much damage. I'm
3: apparently at stage 2, going to stage 3, and I've got liver damage.
0: I've said this before. Left untreated, it can cause cirrhosis and liver cancer.
3: No one, in their wisdom, decided to do a hep C test. It's taken a little GP and a little GP surgery in a little place called Helston to save my life. To save my life.
0: The exact number of people who've been infected is unknown, but the estimates range from a few thousand to nearly 30,000. I've spoken to more than a dozen people like Stephen who were given hepatitis C from blood transfusions.
5: It must be about four weeks ago now. So, so this is really very new for me. I'm still processing it all and quite numb from it.
0: There's Margaret, who went to donate blood a couple of months ago to give back during the pandemic. That's not her real name.
5: You know, it was just one of those things that I thought, Actually, I really must do that. I haven't been.: But in a few
0: weeks later, years. she received a scary letter. I've asked her to read it to me. I'm
5: writing in connection with the blood donation you gave on the 28th of June. Unfortunately, we were unable to use your blood for a patient because it tested positive in our routine hepatitis screening test. The results indicate that you have a hepatitis C infection. It's been very scary, but you know, this is, I am so grateful that I know before knowing because I'm ill.
0: The Hepatitis C Trust hears from about two people a month who, like Stephen and Margaret, have just been diagnosed, years after having infected blood transfusions. And they often have eerily similar stories. With my, the
6: first birth, that's my eldest son, I lost lots and lots of blood. I was just really white and I couldn't stand up straight. In 1980,
5: I had a hysterectomy
2: the first blood transfusion in March 1992 because I was pregnant I was anemic well it was my husband he was infected so I'm affected
6: I was really chronically fatigued I mean more tired than you would normally be tired and then I was getting very sort of brain foggy my concentration was starting to go
2: you feel as if you're wading through treacle. feel as if your synapses won't connect. Really bad digestive issues. You had a sore back. That was the first problem. My
6: skin was so itchy.
2: Isolation, because you feel so unwell. Somebody
6: just said to me
2: that worked in pathology, she said, ask them to
5: test you for hep C. And it
2: had been on his record for 26 years that he had hep C, which they never informed him about. You know, so many people have been diagnosed in the last four or five years. And I lost my husband eight years ago and it's been just a battle. They called it the silent killer.
0: With Stephen's diagnosis, a lot of things fell into place.
3: And I'm like, wow, like, yeah, hell yeah. Like, for the last 35 years, I've been grumpy, moody, aggressive... This is the one that really upsets me. Um, just give me a minute and I'll, I'll be back. Sorry, I oh, can't blame me. It really does change your personality. It, it makes you into a monster.
0: In a way, Stephen's pleased to finally know what's been hiding in his body for so long, making him sicker and sicker. But he can't shake the feeling that if he had found out sooner, then his life could have been very different.
3: My wife... Uh, died of liver cancer nine years ago.
0: His first wife, who he had his daughter with.
3: That's going from my mind. Did I give her hepatitis C? Was I the cause of her, her dying? How did I feel? <sighs> wow, how did I feel? I, I'm, I'm, I'm being goose now talking to you. Uh, terrified.
0: The physical impact of hepatitis C can be devastating. Simon and Nigel, the twins from Northern Ireland, know that all too well. Unlike Stephen, they got it from Factor Eight. I
7: put on an awful lot of fluid, couldn't even wear a pair of trousers, had to stop work.
0: That's Nigel. He became a lot more ill than his brother Simon.
7: I found myself also having another issue, which passed toxins through to the brain, bypassing the liver because the liver was so badly scarred. Um, And I started to have uh, strange, uncontrollable episodes that uh, I would just burst out laughing or or drop a cup of coffee and I couldn't understand why.
0: Nigel's liver was so damaged, he needed a transplant. It was a terrifying experience, but he pulled through.
7: And I can see that with Nigel now, since he's had a liver transplant after getting cancer and since he has recovered very well so far, um, despite everything, that he's a different person physically.
0: As for Simon, he has cirrhosis and lives in constant fear that he'll need a transplant too.
7: prospects aren't wonderful so you're burying all that on an everyday basis and and because it's stage two every six months I've got to get blood tests so all of that uh, yeah all of that is my lot
0: for the people I've spoken to with HIV the lasting impacts different there are treatments now that can make the virus almost undetectable but the emotional scars run deep we're pioneers of HIV
2: that we were part of the first cohort of people that were infected with HIV.
0: That's Claire, who was widowed after her husband Brian died from AIDS. She's in good health, but she has to go to hospital for regular tests. The first time we met, I went with her to get results, after she gave evidence at the inquiry.
2: Those of us that have lived with HIV for 35 years and have been part of a massive, massive cover-up have so much damage done to us, physically damage done to us mentally.
0: She wants people to know how tough it's been to live with HIV, to understand her story.
2: My head is bedded back as a 23-year-old. Don't speak about it, don't speak about it, don't speak about it. There are so many people in the haemophilia world who were infected with HIV who are still silenced to this day.
0: Claire's open about having HIV now but she still comes across ignorance.
2: Only a few years ago, I faced stigma with a someone who was taking blood from me at a hospital.
0: The nurse asked if she was on any medication. Claire said yes, for HIV.
2: And at that point, she just stopped, and walked out and left me there. The next time I saw her, she was wearing these massive oversized gloves, looking really frightened. And I just thought, God, this is, this is not that many years ago.
0: Joe, who was married to Frankie, says something similar. To this day, the idea of being open about his HIV is unthinkable. How does it make you feel now to be keeping it quiet? Because a lot of people listening might think that stigma doesn't exist in the same way now.
8: To be honest, um, I'll slip into Latin, but that's bollocks. Um, I, I, I wear a red ribbon and I take it off as soon as I get on the train. Um, I live in a small village uh, in central England and if I walked in the pub with this I'm fairly sure i would have the equivalent to a burning cross in our front garden whereas if I walked in and said I'd got cancer I'd have free drinks all night. Uh, yeah you, you try living with something like AIDS or even hepatitis in a, in a small rural village you know it's nonsense total nonsense.
0: We're with his friend Alan when we talk. Alan's also infected And they have another example of how HIV is treated differently.
8: It's still an offence for me, Joe, or anybody to to sleep with somebody without telling them our status. Even though we are undetectable, which is untransmissible, there is still legal ramifications Yes, um, and there aren't to any other diseases that can be passed that way.
0: Frankie tells me she's had to live a double life because of what happened to her and Joe. Even if you say, I lost a baby, oh, where did you bury? You know, what?
6: How, how can I explain that? Because I didn't. So it's best not to get people
0: involved in your life. Answers beg more questions, and they're not always ones survivors want to respond to. She kept the whole thing secret, even until a few years ago. I didn't want to tell my family. They knew Jo had HIV, but they didn't know her diagnosis nor about the termination at seven months. Her dad passed away without ever knowing. But when the inquiry was announced, Frankie decided it was time to tell her mum and brothers. Oh
6: my God, my mum is like so, well, was, bless her, so laid back. Oh well, you know, let's just get on with things, because I knew that's exactly what she would do. So my mum just was my mum. My brothers find it quite
0: difficult they treat me like they're walking on glass. But they can now see why Frankie changed so much as a person. Before I was just wicked and horrible and nasty. Now they
6: can understand why. Where it's coming from. Yeah. Why, why all of a sudden this girl that was like the way she was became sullen, quiet.
0: That makes me sad. Frankie's mum passed away earlier this year. At the wake, one of her brothers confessed to her. Do you know what? He said, I just
6: do not know how you did that and I can't even compute how you did it and on your own. And I said, I can't either. I wouldn't advise anybody to do what I did.
0: You know, I I didn't see any other way. Joe and Frankie's virus levels are now undetectable, but Frankie was recently diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder. How's your physical and mental health now? Physical health is OK. I look after myself, I eat
6: well, I walk. My mental health is probably quite, quite difficult. I'm still having counselling, but I'm getting there.
0: The Infected Blood Inquiry has been validating for survivors. They feel like they're finally being listened to. What's it been like to all, like come together and to have this yeah, inquiry? Yeah, incredibly
5: empowering. You know, it's because you realise that, you know... You're, you're not alone. You're, you're not alone. You're not alone.
0: That's Steve. He's friends with the boys from Trelaw's school. He has HIV and hepatitis C.
5: One thing the inquiry has brought about is that you meet more and more people, and it's, a, it's a quite a cathartic.
9: We've, we've rejoined with people that we thought we'd never see again.
0: Richard there. Campaigners like the community feel, as Michelle explains.
9: There are people coming up
6: that are on their own, so, well, let's have breakfast together. And it's nice just to see people meeting each other, talking, sharing their grief, having a cry.
0: There are four main things survivors want from the inquiry. Everyone has different priorities, but there are common themes. The first thing they want is the truth. That means answers from the people involved. How
2: is it that 1,243 haemophiliacs got HIV? And how come the vast majority of the public did not know about this?
9: Over the years, we've been pushed aside, dismissed, uh, made to feel like moaners. And we haven't had the recognition, I think, that we've all craved for so many years. We're not asking for
7: blood, we're simply asking for the truth. And we have those answers that help us put to bed, close the chapter, shut the book.
0: And it's also a chance for survivors to put their stories on the record, to hand them over. After I um, gave evidence, it's like shedding a skin. The second thing they want is a formal apology.
7: When I was at the inquiry, at the end, I said sorry.
0: Dr Leah Katparapia from Bradford saw firsthand how much it meant to survivors.
7: And I got so many messages and people writing to me. But that's what we needed over all these years, is people to say sorry, look, things have gone wrong, but we are sorry. Even the government never said sorry. And the reason is, in this country, there's a culture, if you say sorry, it means you're admitting liability.
0: And if the government did that, they might have to pay compensation. And that's the third thing survivors want.
9: For those of us that are still alive, at the end of all this, whether it be 18 months or two years down the line, I just hope everyone gets what they deserve.
7: And it is imperative that for those people who have lost their jobs, who couldn't work because of their health, Uh, who suffered serious uh, mental illness as a result of it, and the pain and the anguish of losing family and losing career, uh, and the social impacts, those have all got to be recognised.
0: The government has announced an independent study to look into compensation for the survivors.
4: I think it cannot but report uh, that this was badly handled by the government, that it was a cover-up, and that these people should have been compensated.
0: Des Collins, the lawyer from Watford.
4: That's a huge process to come down the line. And you're talking in terms of billions, huge amounts of money. Because if you valued each case at about a million pounds and you say you've got 1,500 of them, you do the, the figures on it.
0: There's one more thing some campaigners would like to see, and that's criminal charges.
8: We would love a criminal prosecution out of this.
0: Who exactly could be in the dock if there were to be charges is unclear. Doctors, politicians, civil servants or people from the pharma companies.
1: One of the main people I would have liked to have seen criminal charges against is Arthur Bloom.
0: He's the leading haemophilia doctor who died in the 90s.
1: I know for a lot of our community, they, they love the idea of arrest Ken Clark. And yeah, I love the idea of that too, but I'm also a realist and I know that's not going to happen.
0: Des Collins doesn't think it's likely Ken Clark will face charges.
4: I suspect if there were prosecutions, they would be more likely to be brought against the senior civil servants who were responsible for the decisions even though they were made in the name of the politicians.
0: The pupils from Trelaws have another idea.
9: I think I'll actually pay some of my compensation money to actually set up a huge stall in the middle of the city of Westminster. <laughs> Stocks, nothing egregious, but just have vanloads and vanloads of rotten fruit <laughs> for the campaigners <laughs> to, jewels, hurl, the to hurl at the ministers. That would, that I, would do it for me, I think. All of them. <laughs> starting with Mr Mr KC and working our way back
0: the chair of the inquiry sir brian langstaff isn't ruling anything out apart from maybe stocks in westminster twin brothers simon and nigel have an impassioned plea for sir brian as he puts together his final report
7: this is the last stand so government needs to get it right and and i hope and trust as other As other campaigners and and victims do, that there will be some integrity and some honesty and some clarity at the end of this report that Sir Brian brings out so that we can finally bury this damn beast and people can get on with their lives and live them because so many people have been consumed by this monster that they may never be able to get free of it. And it is my desire that as soon as it's over, I run to the hills and get free from it for once and for all.
0: But there's one more thing I want to know. Could it ever happen again? To truly understand if things have changed, we have to go back to the place where this all begins, the plasma donation room. I've been looking into the plasma trade. That yellowish part of blood is just as important now as it was in the 80s. Today... Factor VIII is all synthetic. I've mentioned that. But almost all of us will receive human plasma at some point in our lives. Pregnant women are often given antibodies, and it's used when people suffer major blood loss, like after a car crash. It can also treat burns, liver failure and rare conditions. It's massively in demand. In 2018, the world harvested over 60 million litres of plasma. That's the equivalent of 24 Olympic swimming pools. I've learned a lot of promising things, though. All plasma is now screened for viruses like hepatitis and HIV, and it's cleaned with heat and chemicals. In Britain, we have strict rules for plasma collection. The NHS assures people all our donors are unpaid. It's illegal to pay. So people give blood, platelets and plasma to help save lives – but after the AIDS crisis, there was mad cow disease and Brits were banned from donating plasma after traces were found in our blood supply. Some people with haemophilia were exposed to it through factor 8. That rule was lifted this year, in 2021. We don't generate anywhere near enough plasma in the UK to sustain ourselves. So where does it all come from? I've been doing some digging And I'm surprised by what I find.
5: This is the other side of the American dream. Masses of poor people willing to sell their blood. They provide an unlimited pool of primary material.
0: I'm watching a documentary. This isn't World in Action from 1975, but a film from 2017 called Blood Business.
5: We wanted to understand the conditions in which blood is collected. 7am in Cleveland, in the parking lot of Octopharma.
0: Cleveland's been badly hit by unemployment. There are people lining up to enter a large building in a strip mall. They have their hoods up and hats on as they shuffle in. The reporters make it inside with a hidden camera. They show donors answering questions on a machine, like do they have HIV, have they had a tattoo in the last couple of years, and do they do drugs. Then they have a quick health check where their blood pressure's taken. The room's full, Rows and rows of beds with donors lying in them. They're mostly adult men. Outside, one donor says he's seen people doing drugs in the car park just after they've donated. Before long, the centre calls the police and the reporters are told to move on. This scene is repeated in city centres across America every day. People queuing up to give plasma on a weekday morning. What if you could earn extra money while doing something great for others? At Octopharma Plasma, you can. Not only are plasma donations vital to the treatment of rare, chronic and genetic diseases... But it's not just TV adverts that appeal to Americans to donate their plasma. There
10: are billboards
0: uh, that say give plasma, make $700
10: a month. There are radio commercials. Uh, I've seen ads on buses.
0: Annelidis Ochoa is an American researcher who's looking into the plasma business. She's telling me about it. How much money is it that donors receive for donating their plasma in the US? The specials
10: or the incentives that I've seen that are going on right now are between $900 to $1,000 a month for the first month. Wow. You said you've got an advert there. I will hold it up and show it to you. So here you see, it says, A part-time that pays well. Earn up to $1,000 in eight
0: donations. It doesn't look very sort of medical or clinical at all, does it? It kind of looks like it could be an advert for a babysitting job. It's kind of a sort of pastel green. And the $1,000 is quite prominent there, isn't it? Yes, it is. And where did you pick up that flyer from?
10: I picked this up at a, a shopping centre. I'm like, oh my God, they're advertising in shopping centres.
0: She reads the small print to me, from the bottom of the flyer,
10: initial donation to receive a total of one hundred twenty-five dollars on your first a donation, donation. one hundred and fifty on your second donation, one hundred and fifty on your third donation, one hundred and twenty-five, on one fifty on the sixth, of one hundred on the one hundred dollars on the eighth successful donation. Initial donation must be completed by April thirtieth, twenty twenty-one, and subsequent donations within thirty days.
0: So it's really pushing you to do all those eight donations in your first month um not really giving you much time to see how one plasma donation affects your body or anything like that that is correct feels like a bit of an incentive driver doesn't it oh well i'm getting 100 this time but next time i'll get 150
10: yes and i mean the intention is to recruit long-term donors so plasma companies want people to become
0: permanent donors not just for a month but you know for years there are adverts that offer bonuses for people who bring friends with them to donate. As for the location of the plasma centres, they're still based in poor areas, like Skid Row. Anna Lydis shows me a map she's made. They're concentrated in cities with high unemployment and near state-funded universities. One of the most interesting
10: things that I learned while investigating the plasma industry is that there are a
0: lot of plasma centres along the US-Mexico border. And it's not uncommon for people to cross the border to donate their plasma. With all this, America generates 75% of the world's plasma supply. China makes 10%. And the rest of the world, well, it pales in comparison. The United States
10: has the least restrictive regulations in the world. People can give up to twice a week,
0: and that would be 104 donations per year. In Britain, we can only donate twice a month or 24 times a year. And just as it was decades ago, Britain is still getting a lot of its plasma from American donors on Skid Row. There's a fierce debate. Should countries pay donors to get enough plasma to feed the growing demand? The World Health Organization still recommends self-sufficiency, after all. Others say it's unethical that paid plasma leeches off the poor, That we don't mind the practice of paying for plasma, but only when it happens overseas. That we're all prepared to just turn a blind eye. There's been very little research into the long-term health impacts of donating plasma regularly. And Annelidis Ochoa is one of the few people looking at the whole system. She's found that the US plasma trade started to boom after the financial crash. And uh, since then, it's just continued to increase.
10: The number of centres has more than trebled. There are about 975 plasma centres in the US right
0: now. And the pandemic has led to even more. By the end of this year, there might be a thousand. And more plasma means more profit. The industry
10: was worth about $4 billion in 2008 and is forecast to reach $48 billion by 2025.
0: The author Douglas Starr sums it all up.
3: It certainly sounds morally sketchy. And then the, the question becomes, how morally sketchy? But then what if you don't have enough plasma and people die? And I'm not evading your
0: question, I'm appreciating the complexity of it. There are other models. In Italy, people get a day off work to donate plasma, and they're nearly self sufficient. As Britain starts its own plasma drive, it's something to think about. But my main question is whether this crisis could repeat itself. Plasma is a lot safer now, but I want to know if it's completely safe. I asked the author, Donna Shaw, do you think there are enough safety checks now in place that this, a scandal like that couldn't happen again, or could it happen again if a new virus or germ appeared? There's
5: always going to be new pathogens, new viruses that are going to uh, infect the blood supply. Will they be killed by the current processes that we use? But is it possible that there are some germs out there lurking Uh, that we don't know about yet, that would
0: not be killed off by these processes. It's possible. If another disease did appear in the blood, there's hope that the pharma companies would react quicker, that they wouldn't try and cover it up.
5: It would be wonderful for me to say that it could never happen again, but it absolutely could happen again. We're all going to have to have constant vigilance because
0: when you forget about these things, when you forget that they happened, you're opening a door for it to happen again. And we've got to hope they've learned the lesson because the companies that dominate the American market today, they've got pretty familiar roots. Annelides Sachoa talks me through them. There are four companies
10: that dominate the market and own about 80% of plasma centres. So CSL Plasma, an Australian company, owns about 29% of plasma centres in the US. They own the remains of armor. Griffles, a Spanish company, owns 20%. They took over Bayer's plasma business. BioLife, which is owned by Takeda, a Japanese pharmaceutical, owns 16% of the market. They have Baxter's haemophilia division. And Octopharma, a Swiss company, owns 15% of
0: the market. And that was founded by a man called Wolfgang Margare, who used to run pharmaceuticals at Revlon Healthcare. I contacted the companies for their response, but only two replied in time. Bayer say they've cooperated with the public inquiry and they express sympathy for people who were infected and their families. They wouldn't add more because of the inquiry. And Baxter, they say they sold that part of their business. I go back to K-Noel, the whistleblower from Alpha. Do you think lessons have been learned? I'm cynical, so...
8: Do I think that the corporate world will be faster to respond to the next risk that arises?
0: I'm too cynical to believe that that's the case. But I'm going to give Douglas Starr the final word on this. The blood industry...
1: They have been so conscientious and so careful. I myself, uh, for minor athletic operations, have had a couple of incidents where I've been transfused with a bunch of plasma and I
3: had no discomfort about it at all.
0: When I started digging into this scandal, my motivation was to tell the story of a group of people who were given deadly infections from treatments designed to help them who were then pushed from pillar to post in the search for justice and who've largely been forgotten from public consciousness. Listeners tell me they're shocked at what happened, that they didn't know about it. Survivors and campaigners have messaged me to say they've learnt things too, like the perspective of whistleblower Kay Noel and some of the adverts Michael Baum showed me, the ones that targeted people with hepatitis B. They've since been submitted to the inquiry as evidence. The stories had a lasting impact on everyone involved, from the people who were infected to those who tried to help them. Donna Shaw, the author, sent me an email just the other day saying she lost a lot of sleep over the years from covering this story. It gets to you in ways that no other does, she says. Des Collins, the lawyer from Watford, is Hardy, of the old school. He's worked on this case for four years and heard the stories of over a 1,000 people. I ask him if any of it's got to him.
4: It's people watching your father die over a period of six or eight months in awful circumstances, and very often it's not just the experience of death, it's what happened after the death. This is back particularly in the early days when the funeral people would say, well, basically leave the body in a black bag at the end of the garden.
0: That's horrible. Has that got you again now? Mm.
4: It's just inhuman. But it's, it's, you can understand uh, man's inhumanity to man because we're all the same. But someone caused that funeral director to have to behave in that way.
0: The old boys from Trelaw School who've lived to see the inquiry can't shake a feeling of guilt. Richard, Adrian, Tom, and the other ex pupils tell me how deep it runs.
8: You feel like, you know, I haven't suffered anything like a number of others, lots of other people. I'm still here. I'm quite healthy. Yeah, so it's, it's some weird kind of a guilt. or they may, People may look at you and say, like, why is he okay? Why did he get away with it? Regarding Survivor's like Guilt, um every hour I think of somebody or you hear a song, you know, the usual ones, a film. Um the famous, the famous film Gremlins came on the other week and we all, one of our first experiences of Telors is Tell the us went to go see Gremlins in the local cinema. So when that when that film comes on, I'm in the cinema with Ten. Um Roughly seven died now, three of us are left. So it's just a continuum of guilt. And why me? Why us?
0: They've made a promise to their late classmates to keep their memories alive. When one of his friends was dying, he begged Adrian
8: You must get the story out. You must tell people, talk and talk and talk. Um, So I've been talking ever since.
0: And there's one thing they will always have to the end each other. They're bonded by this tragedy for the rest of their lives.
8: That's an interesting
9: photograph.
0: Simon and Nigel, the twins from Northern Ireland, have made similar commitments to the relatives they lost, who had haemophilia too.
7: I felt I had to speak for those whose voices had been taken away.
0: Simon, you said there that when, um, when this is over, you want to run for the hills. Can you tell me a bit about what you're looking forward to doing or what might change for you both when this is all over?
7: It's like a war will have ended. I just want to be able to go back to the garden, back to the fields, just symbolically or, or uh, metaphorically, just to be able to leave it behind. And then I just want to go off and get on with life and do the other things and not have this, like, uh, an incubus sitting on my shoulder all the time.
0: And is that the same for you, Nigel?
7: I don't enjoy campaigning. It is part of me. It is necessary. I've taken this course and I will run it until it's done. Then I'll sit back. Then I'll relax. Then I'll do what I want to do.
0: The end of the infected blood inquiry will finally bring a moment of closure for all these survivors. They'll have a life beyond the scandal. For Jason, the campaigner whose dad died when he was 4, the report will be bittersweet.
1: It's giving me some connection to my dad or his life. I'm stretching out, you know, that time, you know, I didn't have with him, and I often wonder, you know, when when this inquiry ends. It may almost be like losing him again, in a way, because this moment, this connection of, to his life, will, will be over.
0: His mum still cries every time they talk about his dad.
1: I just keep coming back to this thing where, like, there is no victory, there is no winning. It's just too late. There is never going to be a day where we're all stood on some steps, like, cheering and chanting, and yeah, we finally made it. It's never going to happen because almost everyone's already dead, so it's already lost. It's just sad all round.
0: If there is no victory, why are you doing it?
1: For me, that's what this is about. It's just about respecting and honouring my dad.
0: But Jason's made himself a promise.
1: I did decide some time ago that I'm in it 100% for this inquiry in the group legal action. After those two things have ran their course, success or fail, I'm out, I'm done, and I will never campaign on this issue ever again. That is set in stone for me because I do not, you know, want to be... You know, I'm, I'm at a point where I'm thinking about having my own kids and it's like, oh, where's dad? He's upstairs trying to get to the truth about the blood scandal. You know, I, I don't want to be that person.
0: Frankie and Joe, the couple who had to terminate a pregnancy at seven months, are still traumatised by what happened.
8: I try and have a stiff upper lip about it, and I try and put it if I start thinking about it, I put it to the back of my mind. Something that did bring it up in a, in a meal with my solicitor is that my solicitor is the age that my son would have been. That brings it home.
0: Jo's remarried to someone who was widowed after her first husband died from AIDS. He was a hemophiliac too. Frankie tells me her experiences changed her very personality. You are literally a shroud of who you were. At the end of our conversation, she tells me it's now time to try and put everything behind her. I've made a conscious decision from today.
6: I won't be coming back.
0: To the inquiry. Because it's a
6: constant area of upset. But I do feel that it's time to move on. You know, my partner's just had a grandchild, so I... I'm going to quite happily slip into a bit of normality and a bit of normal life and and gain what I can from doing that.
0: And what are some of the things that you're looking forward to in going back into normal life?
6: So we've just moved down to Cornwall, so we're very close to the sea. So everything now is at a point of change and I need to flip to the next episode of me. glad that you're doing this as part of
0: that process
6: yes this is part of that process this is part of the the healing process and even though there are tears and sadness um the guilt and the blame and the shame is starting to diminish and I'm so pleased with that and you know the last thing my mum said to me is take care of you So I am
0: Claire has been reflecting on her history, and trying to conserve it for future generations. She's proud of how she overcame so many challenges in the face of such tragedy. And she's pleased it's now being documented in this podcast. This is as
2: important to me as, as, as evidence to the inquiry, because it's there, it's being recorded.
0: Still, she exists in a place that's filled with lost things.
2: I mean, psychologically, I mean, I'm left now, um, you know, 60 in a couple of weeks. I'm left without a family. I should be at this point of my life thinking about retirement, thinking about you know, the children I would have had, the grandchildren, you know, watching children go to university, just the, the
0: normal stuff. But there's one place where she has managed to find solace. And as you come out there, often the birds will just
2: all flutter out. Wow, that's <laughs> yeah. amazing. And, I, and I've always been a gardener and always loved um, space around me. Yeah. But, um, so was, this is what I'd intended to do, so that's why I moved out. But I decided to throw some wild seed and have wildflowers here.
0: Her garden's long and verdant, with a wrought iron archway in the middle. We walk all the way to the far end. Where there's a bench that looks back towards Claire's house. Often I'll just sit here
2: with the dog. The dog, just, the dog runs all over the garden jumps on the bench with me, so it's lovely. So,
0: yes, so um, it, it's nice now. It's peace for me, really. As I'm finishing this series, I catch her on one of those days spent in her garden. It's autumn now, and she's been tending to three new trees. Have you been having a nice Friday?
2: I've been gardening. It's beautiful autumn colour now. Beautiful.
0: Yeah, I'm sure it's looking very nice. So I had one more question I wanted to ask you. There's been a common thread running through the series. It's not an easy question, but I wanted to ask you it. Who do you think is responsible for Brian's death? I think the pharmaceutical companies.
2: And those that then allowed the pharmaceutical companies to operate in the way they did. my husband Brian, a hemophiliac was so low down in their in their eyes that he just didn't matter and so he died um, never knowing perhaps that was the best thing for him that you know as he went to iceland and enjoyed that last adventure he had that he he didn't spend his time campaigning all we can do is continue to push for the truth and, and the truth is all we have
9: all the things that happened to you are sent as a trial when your number is called up, your number's called up, there's nothing you can do about it. The things that are sent to try you to somehow test your strengths, I guess. It just goes to show how quickly life can be snatched away from you. You can enjoy everything
5: while you can.
0: I'm Cara McGugan, and this was Bed of Lies. Thank you for listening. And if you enjoyed the show, please do leave a five-star rating and a short review on Apple Podcasts. It'll help new listeners find us and help share the stories of the people affected by this scandal. It might just bring them one step closer to justice. If you received contaminated blood or blood products before 1991 you can contact the Inquiry at infectedbloodinquiry.org.uk. Please do consider taking out a Telegraph subscription. We couldn't have made this show without our subscribers. You can sign up for 30 days free at telegraph.co.uk forward slash lies podcast. Don't forget that you can find exclusive details and pictures in my reporter's notebook at telegraph.co.uk forward slash notebook. Bed of Lies was written by me, Cara Magugan, and produced by Sarah Peters at Tuning Fork Productions. The executive producer was Theodora Leloudis, and sound design was by David Thomas and Peregrine Andrews. I'd also like to thank Rachel Welsh, Tom Gibbs, and Giles Gear for their help with the series. If there's a story you think I should be telling, you can find me on Twitter at cjmagugan or email